They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! Kenzie, Jake Lapin here with you. We are joined in studio by a very special guest. He's back. He was on an earlier episode of the Face Off podcast, and now he has turned into a friend of the show, Sam Fortier of The Ringer. Welcome back, buddy. Thanks. I appreciate it, guys. Appreciate you guys having me back. Yeah, the pleasure to have you back on again. First returning guest. That's that's big. <laughs> that is Brag to all your friends. We've had a whole <laughs> bunch of these guests on the show, but yes, you are the first one to have actually made it back. I, I, I'm the first one you guys like. I, I'm surprised you invited me back. That surprise. You were you were good the first time, and I'm sure you're going to be just as good the second time. Right, you're putting the pressure on. Yeah, a little early. bit. Right, a little that's bit. Fine. Raising the bar. That's I'm what we ready. do here at the face-off. Cool. And uh, also, uh, thank you to everyone who is watching and listening on Facebook Live, as well on YouTube. We are everywhere now. Can't escape us. Nope. Absolutely For not. better or for worse. Let's get into some news of the day. And the biggest reason why we have, why we have Sam Fortier here in studio is because of this article you got to work on for the Daily Orange on Mike Hopkins' departure from Syracuse to University of Washington. By the way, great job. You and uh, Matt Steinman on that piece. Outstanding work on both of your parts. Thank you. I appreciate that. We were able to send, because of Daily Orange alumni, we were able to send Matt to Seattle. Um, got a one-on-one sit-down with Mike Hopkins and Jennifer Cohen, the first-year athletic director at Washington and Schneidman, you know, with his limited time with those one-on-ones, did a great job in reporting and, and really pulled that story. Um, really pulled that story and gave us the materials we needed to put all together. Credit to the SU alum. So, first things first, about Mike Hopkins taking that job in Washington. Why that job? That That's, I think, a, a big question that was on a lot of people's minds. You know, he's interviewed at... Oregon State, Boston College, USC most notably was was the job he was looking for. But I think, you know, Mike Hopkins is a big big guy about change. He loves change. You know, he works on USC basketball um, with Mike Krzyzewski, and Mike Krzyzewski's a big change guy. His favorite book, Change or Die, he's got binders and binders of inspirational quotes and, like, the San Antonio Spurs organizational recipe, secret sauce uh, on his desk. I mean, this is a guy who loves different things you know changing to and adapting to survive I think and one of the things he told the Daily Orange was this was a chance to build and not protect Um, obviously this is his dream school this is where he always wanted to be but he always you know he always wanted to be a coach first it wasn't about Syracuse and I think what you saw was the internal conflict of Mike Hopkins saying okay I want to be a head coach but I also you know want to be at Syracuse and finally you saw the be a head coach win um in that conflict and obviously it's a strange timing with one year to go before he's the head coach of his dream school yeah but i think it was you know what he said was 
I, I wanted to build. He wants to build. He wants to be on the West Coast. His parents are growing older in Southern California. And so I think this was uh, – he, he couldn't turn this down uh, personally. Right, because the, the up until uh, him leaving, Beheim was supposed to be here for another year and Hopkins was supposed to be the next guy. So if he just waited one more year, he could have had that opportunity to build – and do all these great things here in Syracuse. So that was definitely the biggest thing that played in my mind. But when you bring up the whole family aspect in South, in Southern California, and obviously that's pretty close to Washington, I guess that makes sense. But I don't know. That That's still kind of, in my mind, I kind of saw it as maybe Beheim didn't necessarily want to leave as early as he did. And that's a very popular um, theory. I mean, that's something that if you look at the situation from the outside, I mean, in doing interviews with this story, we talked to probably four, you know, 40 people um, surrounding the program who had been here in the past. And we heard from several people uh, that Jim Beheim said he didn't want to, you know, he said he always said he didn't want to retire too early. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I don't know if that we can't connect that to this situation, I don't think. I think those are non-sequiturs right now. Um, but it's definitely a very popular, I mean, Fox Sports, Sports Illustrated, people definitely wrote this theory out. I don't know if there's anything there to substantiate it publicly. I don't think Mike Hopkins, right. being the guy that he is, would ever say something like that, and Beheim obviously wouldn't. Right. Um, it's a, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's very feasible. Nothing nothing we can do to substantiate it. But that, that I think, makes sense. But, but to go off um, one of your earlier points about um, – building here I, I think whoever I mean like if you think about it whoever's the next coach at Syracuse no matter who it is Mike Hopkins Adrian Autry uh, Mac, anybody from the outside mm-hmm. you're automatically that guy who follows Jim Beheim, who's been here for more than 40 years almost 50 years whenever he retires so that I mean I, I won't go at any anybody for turning that job down or, or you know looking for a situation that's better for you personally because whoever's going to be here it's going to be a very, very challenging task. Those are enormous shoes to fill, not just for the basketball program itself, but in the community as Absolutely. a whole. And, you know, you said you mentioned Sports Illustrated and some of those major things uh, touched on it. We here at the Faceoff uh, <laughs> kind of strewed up some of our conspiracy theories uh, as well. Conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, when Wild Hack came here, we, we kind of got the sense that, you know, maybe this whole three-year plan for Beheim to step down after next season – was kind of going to go away, and I think Wild Hack admitted that himself. I mean, did you did you see this coming? I didn't see this coming. I think originally, I don't know about it going away when Wild Hack came. It was kind of murky a little bit because obviously you knew Jim Beheim never wanted this like public term limit, and Mark Coyle was very uh, firm on this being a thing. I don't know if I would say it went away. I would say it definitely threw it into more doubt because obviously Wild Hack is different than Coyle and, and being an SU alum, like he was here when Beheim was the coach, which is, you know, like strange to think about. Yeah. But but when someone, again, like Jim Beheim has very publicly said it was still the plan to retire until Hopkins took this job. So I, it, like everything points to it being the plan still. Obviously, like we don't know what goes behind behind closed doors. And really the only people that are going to know about that are really Hopkins, Beheim and Wild Hack. So you'll never get anybody to say it publicly if it was a thing. But I, I think it's it's definitely a possible solution, just like knowing what we know. As a right. media member, uh, how much will you miss Mike Hopkins? I know I've talked to a few people who have gotten the opportunity to cover pressers here with SU Basketball, and, and people have, and media members especially, have nothing but great things to say 
uh, about Mike Hopkins when it comes to one-on-one conversations. So I was just curious about your thoughts on him as a person. Mm-hmm. I've actually never had a one-on-one conversation with Mike Hopkins. Um, he... I mean, like you could see in the first quote in our story, he says, holy shiitake mushrooms. Yeah. Like he's like a very colorful dude who yeah. has lots of interests outside. And this is just by doing a lot of reading. Um, I worked with, with a friend of mine who wrote um, a Mike Hopkins profile for the Daily Orange last in the fall of 2015. You know, working with him, kind of getting to know him through quotes, through through interview transcripts. He's just a very interesting guy who's interested in a lot of things you saw in our story that change or die quote when he's talking about um drug relapses in in san francisco mm-hmm. just his ability to be curious about things to be beyond basketball i think you, you're always going to miss someone who has an outside curiosity and outside interest in other things like he read a book about starbucks um just to see what like how that company grew yeah. um and, and people like that who are just curious about other things like i think you'll always miss and an emotional guy as well. Uh, from what I've heard, it sounds like where Syracuse is really going to miss him is during recruiting. It sounds like he was the one who was actually going out there scouting these high school players around the country, and then Bayheim would come in later, sort of seal the deal. Um, I mean, wh- where do you do you think recruiting is going to take a hit, or if someone else is going to be able to step up? I know Adrian Autry was promoted already to associate head coach. Is that? the role he's going to fill into? We talked to about half a dozen high school coaches who had interacted with Mike Hopkins, and, and they all, you know, the business side of this is, okay, we'll, we'll talk to whoever you guys send, and, and hopefully um, things will work out the same way. But, uh, you know, talking to Michael Carter-Williams, high school coach, and, and, and he found out in Greece, um, they sent him a text. Uh, you know, he got a text from a friend of his, and, and he showed it to a player he was over there watching who, who had also come to Syracuse, Demetrius Nichols, and they were both just shocked um and so will it affect recruiting i mean i think it will i I don't know to the extent but anytime you have a guy like mike hopkins who's been around for that long in this program i mean he preached he pitched recruits on okay all these other guys all these other recruiters can say their school is a family but do these other schools have a coaching staff that's entirely su alum like like we really have uh, a network here a branch here of these are Syracuse guys, not just Syracuse guys now. They're Syracuse guys in college. They were Syracuse guys before that. So when you have that evidence to back things up like that, I, I, I think that's always an interesting like, – like it's a, it's a show-me aspect to the things that you're saying. Um, obviously, you can't re- replace a 20-year relationship with a new guy right away. So will it affect recruiting in that sense? I mean – I think the answer is undeniably yes in terms of who steps up and, and makes that play in recruiting remains to be seen. But I think inevitably, yeah, is the answer. I also hear that Mike Hopkins was pretty good with players on his own team with SU. And uh, it just so happens that, you know, as we were doing our podcast last week, uh, we heard news that Tyler Lydon may be looking to go into the NBA draft. Do you think if Mike Hopkins stays here, Tyler Lydon stays? I'm not sure. That's a that's like a uh, if X, then Y, then Z. I think that's like a maybe a, a bit of a big jump. I don't uh, do math, so that's, I, you just lost. It. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sorry, I know. I'm, kidding. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he stays. Then Tyler Lydon stays. Um, Mike Hopkins did work with the big men. Has worked with the big men since 2011. Um, and I guess whether or not you want to consider Tyler Lydon a big man is kind of his NBA draft stock question, right? Um, 
I, I, I don't know if he stays, um, if Mike Hopkins stays, but obviously those are two pretty big losses for SU in in one weekend. I had a curiosity, just staying with that topic, how do you feel about Leiden declaring for the draft? Do you think it's a good move? Do you think he should stay another year? We talked about this uh, last time I was here, and, and I'm more of a uh, hands-off. I mean, if you do what you want to do for your life, and, I, and I'm a fan of that, I do think he could have taken a more secure route in terms of declaring, going to the combine, seeing those returns, kind of what Malachi Richardson did last year where you go, you find out what people think, and then you go, okay, do I stay or do I really go? His decision to hire an agent, you know, right out is is bold. And and I think, I mean, if, if that's the way he wants to go out, that's cool. Um, but it just seems like the more logical approach would have been, you know, go and see first before you hire an agent. Isn't Tyler Lydon not necessarily like a bold kind of guy he's kind of quiet people have thought of him as, thought people have thought of him as more like a farmer type like he just would rather just chill out a barn somewhere and not be this star kind of player so yeah that's kind of interesting he makes that kind of bold move i i mean yeah absolutely i think I mean, and we saw him kind of fade down the stretch at the, towards the end of the year right not not have a great nit you know not really a great last five four or five games um Maybe there's a, a frustration because, I mean, there was like a, a little bit of talk that he might go last year. He certainly played his stock up. But then, you know, his family, his going back to what I what I said last time I was here, you know, his family had a discussion, can he hang with 270-pound power forwards? Can he really go out there and, and bring an NBA team something either down low or on the wing? And we didn't see him put the ball on the floor and take it to the basket hardly all season. And we didn't really see him go down there and, and bang with – the bigs so i'm not sure where his family stands on that but obviously his family decided it was it was the best time to move forward so with hopkins gone who on the syracuse coaching staff takes up his place you know either being like a good players coach uh working with the big guys who do you see as that successor to mike hopkins as that good cop and you know the good assistant coach that that'll be interesting to see i think in in promoting um adrian autry i think They've kind of chosen his successor. Obviously, he'd been there a little longer than GMAC. Um, I think it's kind of impossible to replace Mike Hopkins' energy. By all accounts, anyone I've ever talked to, that's the number one thing Like you hear. It's like he has this unreplicable energy and force of personality that like you meet him and you just cannot help but like him. Um I'm not sure how they replace that. It's kind of like when, you know, a, a star retires, who do you replace him? You try to replace him with a couple parts. You know what I mean? Um, can so, It's like that money ball scene uh, where they <laughs> lose all those guys, and it's like, okay, well, we need somebody to get on base and then play defense. You kind of patch it together. Um, Adrian Autry obviously brings different things to the table, but I think in time they'll be able to work back to, to where they were. When when you mentioned Tyler Lydon possibly just going to the combine, seeing, you know, what kind of interest he's getting, I wish they had that for us in the sports media. <laughs> just maybe see see how they feel about us, and if not, come back and do another year of the faceoff. Um, <laughs> circling back to Washington real quick, you know, um, they've had some good recruits. Uh, Markel Fultz, obviously, you know, Hopkins knew he wasn't going to get him. He declared. Long ago, as soon as their season ended, likely a top pick in this upcoming draft. But I want to know, 
did Hopkins think he was going to get Michael Porter Jr., one of the top recruits in the country, who is now decommitted and is following his father, who just got hired to be an assistant at Mizzou? It's an interesting question because I think I, I don't think you can ever go into a job thinking because obviously I interned in Seattle last summer mm-hmm. and it was a big thing when Lorenzo Romar hired Michael Porter Sr. because at the same time Brandon Roy became the high school coach at Nathan Hale High right. School in the suburbs and Michael Porter Jr. transferred there along with his other younger brother and it and, and like all of a sudden everybody in Seattle was like whoa we got this pipeline like literally from high school straight to Lorenzo and and obviously Lorenzo at that time well, the year before he had missed the NCAA tournament with two first round NBA picks DeJounte Murray and Marquise Chris and you know Lorenzo had been there for 14 years at that time 15 years this season you knew exactly what he was so I don't think Mike Hopkins I don't think Mike Hopkins committed to Washington thinking I'm going to get Michael Porter Jr. because obviously college recruiting is so fickle and and you kind of have Michael Porter Jr. contingent to his father's employment and when you fire his father's best friend you got to think that that might shake things up a little bit Um, and so him joining Quanzo Martin um, at Mizzou and that that whole pipeline I think Mike Hoppins had to know okay that's fine but the timeline of how this played out I think was was very interesting because Jennifer Cohen the AD told the Daily Orange that they contacted um, they contacted Mike Hopkins' agent, Brett Just, at CAA on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And she said that Mike Hopkins had been on Washington's list for, quote, a long time. Lorenzo Romar had been there for 15 years. Yeah. And so if it's a long time and you fire Lorenzo on a Wednesday, you call Mike Hopkins on a Thursday, you come to Syracuse and meet with Mike Hopkins and you sit down and he accepts on a Friday, I mean, that... That's really fast. That's really fast. It's really fast. Dead set on that guy. 15, I, 15 years gone in two days. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think Cohen even said something about how when you're making these types of coaching searches, you have to act fast. But, I mean, geez, like two days. That's really quick. This whole timeline is incredibly fishy, hence the uh, conspiracy theories arising. Conspiracy theory. I mean, when you, when, when you think about it, the she declined to comment on timelines um, when Matt Schneidman asked her, but... The question that I would that I really want to hear answered is how and this was the question she declined to answer, but I would love to hear, you know, a, a fully transparent explanation on how did Washington know to reach out to Mike Hopkins if he was one year away from accepting this dream job at the dream school. This goes back to my thing about Bayheim wanting to stay longer than I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in the I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know. Did Hopkins give you any insight on how he wanted to really go about building and and what you know game plans he wanted to put forward for Washington? Nothing beyond uh, coach speak. You know, okay. high character guys. We're gonna play with intensity. Uh, you know, he's gonna employ the two three defense. Uh, he said. He said, "quote It's like an effective tool." Um, and so, like, that remains to be seen what that really is. But I think for him, you know, just getting in there, I don't even know if he has – an. I mean, I'm sure he has an idea of how he's going to go about building it. But when you really start to look look and say, okay, here are the recruits I can go visit now. Who can I build? Because, obviously, this is a very different uh, market. I mean, the reason he – his first recruit in uh, 99-2000, Craig Forth from Albany, who ended up 
being the center on that national championship team. Mm-hmm. That was a sort of thing where he was like, oh, Craig Forrest in Albany, I can go visit him as opposed to this guy I think is better in Oakland or something. So Mike Hopkins likes recruiting local guys. So we'll see now that he's in Seattle where he go, he branches out because I think obviously that's a new market for him. Both his parents grew up around there, but he has not been looking at basketball talent there, I'd assume, for the last five years. Mike Hopkins off to Greener Pastures in Washington. Things are going to look new with Syracuse, with Jim Beheim all by himself without Hopkins and a new staff. Going to be really interesting. Kind of sad I'm not going to be here for it. We'll be keeping tabs on it for sure. Well, of course, yeah. You know, as SU alums, of course, it's on us to keep tabs. But So uh, we're not doing that extra year of the face-off. That's not happening? Well, if it's not going to happen here. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. sure we'll find a way to keep the face-off going somewhere else. Glad but, to hear. Uh, I mean, I don't know how, how the people at Newhouse would feel about two alums just coming in here, just taking up student space here. <laughs> Maybe Sam could just do his own podcast here in this studio. <laughs> you just do that. Him, You're doing all the reins. Yeah. You know, what, you, you want to take over for this show after we graduate? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I want an EP credit. That's all I ask for. <laughs> the man who goes from guest to friend of the show to potential heir of the Face Off podcast. Wow. Sam Fortier, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, on episode nine of the podcast. Thanks for having me back, guys. Always a pleasure. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Third time's the charm, sir. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, One last thing, actually, uh, as we uh, are about to segue into our segment with uh, Shea Serrano of The Ringer. Any question you want us to ask him? I know since you've worked with him, you know, so. I I would say, you know, what I told you guys before the show, him taking on an expanded role at The Ringer. I mean, he was a high school teacher trying to, get shots off uh at grantland now he's has his own basketball column he has a huge following he's got a second book coming out i mean what we're seeing now is shea serrano comma the writer not shea serrano comma the aspiring writer you know like he's established now how does he keep it fresh how does he keep that edge i mean because he really built his edge on i'm not a writer i'm just doing my thing so you've got a new mindset you've got a you've got a keep coming up with new ways to keep people interested and especially with an audience like his that really demands 24 7 Shea Serrano jokes and books and <laughs> gifts and everything that he produces I mean I would imagine it's an exhausting job I can imagine indeed and we will be sure to ask him that question on the other side of this break you're listening to the Face Off podcast Julie McKenzie Jake Lapin special thanks again uh, to Sam Fortier for joining easy. us on this segment what? Hear what I say. We are the business today. Fuck shit is finished today. All T and J. We the new PB and J. We dropped the classic today. We did a tablet of acid today. The joints with the matches and ashes away. We dash away. Donna and Dixon, the pistol is blasting away. Doctors of death. Filling our patients of breath. We are the pain you can trust. Fuck it, it work. Hooking up curses and slurs. Smoking my brain in a mush. I became famous for blaming you fucks. Naming my way through the brush. There was no training or taming of me and my bro. Live like a man, but I'm animal raw. We are the murderous pair. That with the jail and we murdered the murderers there. Then with the hell and discovered the devil delivered some hurt and despair. Used to have power to push. Now I smoke pounds of the push. Holy, I'm burning the bush. Now I give a fuck about none of this shit. Two runner over and out of this bitch. Woo! 
Welcome back to the Face Off Podcast. Julian McKenzie, Jake Leapin here. Thank you to everyone who's still watching on Facebook Live. Thank you to everyone on YouTube as well. Uh, we are now joined by a very special guest, a staff writer at The Ringer, uh, also the best-selling author of The Rap Yearbook. He's coming out with another one, Basketball and Other Things, an illustrated book that's coming out really soon. Shay Serrano is joining us over the phone. Hi, Shay. How are you doing? What up, dudes? Thank you very much for joining us on the Face Off podcast. Uh, first things first, tell us about basketball and other things. Why did you decide to do this book? Oh, uh, I decided to do basketball and other things because the rap yearbook, the book I did before, sold a lot of copies. So the publisher decided to give me like a lot more money for another book. So okay, I said, okay, I'll do another book. Boom. That's why I did it. You could have done it about anything else. Why end up doing it about basketball? Because basketball is fun to talk about and think about and uh, argue about. And I've already done rap, so I don't want to do another rap book. I want to do something else. And I think if you break up like all of the stuff I watch on TV, basketball is you know, a fairly sizable chunk of it. So let's do that. I mean, there are already thousands of pre-orders for this book that's not due to come out for a while how is it already so successful uh that's just dicking around on twitter people being <laughs> silly and like you know they're i think right now people just buy it just because it's it's like a dumb thing to buy a book that's not going to come out for another seven months so you do it just because it's it's 13 bucks on on amazon so whatever it's just a funny thing You've got. You've even got a. Uh, I noticed last night you have a newsletter for the book. If one subscribes to this newsletter, what can one expect to get? Oh yeah, you know, actually, the newsletter. I haven't done the newsletter since last July. Okay. I started it. Uh, Arturo and I started it for the playoffs last year because I wasn't writing anywhere. I was. I had some downtime, and I just wanted to. I hadn't written in like several months. I wanted to feel creative again. So him and I started the newsletter. And we said, okay, we're going to just do this through the playoffs. So we went from, you know, April to June or something like that. But, yeah, over that time, it it, it got like – I have over 30,000 people subscribed to it. And it was just this cool thing to watch happen. Uh, then I started at the Ringer, so I put the newsletter on pause because the playoffs were, were over. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start it again for this round of playoffs or this year of the playoffs. But, yeah, we just did it because we we just felt like doing some cool stuff and putting some stuff out there. I mean, the book is called Basketball and Other Things. What kind of other things are we talking about? Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, man. It's just, it's mostly things that you can maybe relate back to basketball. Like basketball has sort of infiltrated all, almost all of pop culture, similar to the way that rap has. Like there are basketball movies, there are basketball songs, there are baskets. You know, it just goes into all, into all that stuff. It's It would be hard for me to say all of the other things mentioned in there it's just a whole bunch of stuff dudes is it just the pop culture the fact that it blends into pop culture that is that the most appealing thing about basketball to you what else about this wonderful game do you enjoy about it well it's the it's the game that i grew up playing like that was always my most favorite game i didn't like football because i they tackle you in football and i'm super not a fan of getting tackled i didn't like baseball because it just felt too slow when I played it, uh, basketball just fit all of the pieces I was looking for in a game. So 
you know, you start playing when you're a kid and you just grow up with it and I still play today. It's just a fun, a fun thing, man. What would you say is the highlight of the Shea Serrano basketball career? Oh, man. I think it just depends on what sort of angle you're going for. My, maybe my most favorite thing is if you take all the fights that I've gotten into in my <laughs> life, which it's not a great deal, maybe like 10 or 15, but I would say most of them, a good 80% of them happen because of something during the basketball game. That's maybe my, my highlight. Any particular fight in uh, stands out to you from your career? I think that no, the one I go back to first would be the last one I got into. This was right when my my kids are nine years old, and uh, I was playing in the in a rec league right when they were born. This was a thing that I was doing through uh, through work, or no, it was right before they were born actually, because it, it was before I was teaching, and I was playing in this rec league, and it was like. Uh, a work rec league. And so the, my, my company that I worked for was paying for it. It was like a very professional thing, but I ended up getting into a fight and getting banned from the league during one of those games. And, uh, you know, they weren't super excited about that when I got back to work the next, the next day. But I don't know. That's the only, that's the thing, the one I think about because it's the most recent, but again, that was, you know, still a dozen years ago or whatever. It's been a while since I've been in a fight, man. I wanted to ask you uh, some rap questions on the Face Off podcast. Uh, special guest Shay Serrano joining us. Your top five rappers of all time. Who are they? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Come let's on. Go, let's go Tupac. Let's go Biggie. Let's go Rakim. Let's go... DMX and let's go Missy Elliott. There you go. That's my five. I like the Missy Elliott pick. I'll take those five. Yeah, Missy Elliott's great. Missy Elliott is we we still not appreciated her as much as we need to. I'm super sad that I wasn't able to put her in the rap book that I did. I really wanted to. You know, just from uh, following you on Twitter, I, I think I can tell that if we were to play you in when we go back and edit this podcast to a little J Cole, I don't think that would be your favorite thing in the world. Am I wrong about that? I would be super excited if my intro music was something off of a J. Cole album, Friday Night Lights or whatever bullshit. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, I noticed you tweet about this album a lot. How much do you love Run the Jewels 3? Oh, that's a great, that's a super strong album. I really like Run the Jewels a whole, whole bunch. So one to, scale of 1 to 10, they're going to be a solid 7 or 8. They're up there, man. They're really great. What's your favorite track off that album? You know, it's weird. I, I don't think I've ever turned that album on and listened to just one song. None of the Run the Jewels albums function like that for me. It's a thing where all of the pieces fit together. Uh, it would be, to me, like turning on a movie and then just skipping to a certain scene. Like, I don't, I can't watch a movie like that. I don't listen to albums like that. So I honestly don't know the name of one single song off of Run the Jewels 3. But I know the order that all the songs go in. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen uh, LP and Killer Mike live? No, I have not. I've never even met them in person. I think I, I sent an email to both of them one time, but that's about as close as I got. So the rap year book goes through the most important songs from 1979 up to 2014. What are the most important rap songs from 2015 and 2016? 
I think for 2015, you have to pick All Right by Kendrick Lamar, just because of the way that song became part of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was like the most important thing that happened in 2015. So that would be an instance of where you have a song that's important because it was part of a thing that was larger than what rap is. And uh, for 2016, there are a couple of different arguments to be made. You could maybe argue for something like Ultralight Being by Kanye West or pick a song off of Chance's Coloring Book album. I think both of those would signify big moments in rap. But I would go with Panda by Designer. Wow. If for no other reason than because similar to what we saw in 2006 with Rick Ross, where it was like, that was the end of the need for legitimacy in a rap career with, with Panda. I think here going forward, it's going to be a hundred percent. Okay. For a rapper to come out and just not do anything original. Like he just straight up stole what future was doing. Yeah. And every, everyone was just like, Oh, that's cool. Like he did a good, he stole what this guy did, but he did a, a good job of making the song, so it's fine. That's what happened with Rick Ross when it was like he was talking about he was a drug kingpin. We found out he wasn't, but it didn't matter. I think the same thing's happening now. From here going forward, it won't be a thing where you you're gonna say like, oh, that guy copied this guy, and nobody's gonna give a shit anymore. How do you balance being so knowledgeable about sports and the hip hop world? <laughs> I, that I I don't uh, I don't you don't think about any of that stuff. I wouldn't say I'm that knowledgeable about both of those things. It's just you're asking me a question right now that 150 other people have asked me, so I already have a, a pre-baked answer. So it sounds like I, I I just automatically know what I'm talking about. But it's a thing that I've researched. If you ask me a question about like I don't know about Jay a song from a Jay Z album from four years ago I probably wouldn't be able to answer it but you're asking me a very specific question that I already know the answer to so it sounds like I'm smarter than I am you know what I'm saying you're I, I come into this interview you're you're going to ask questions that you know I know answers to already like you're going to ask me basketball stuff or whatever but so it's just pre-baked information I'm not nearly as smart as I think people assume I am are you saying we should try harder I think you should try harder yes okay I think we've got some harder questions for you coming up we got you all right uh, let's start transitioning towards your career as a writer in general. Um, first of all, you have a major presence on social media, most specifically Twitter. Is there a method to your madness on there? No, it's just a thing where that sort of happened by accident. Since I'm a, I'm a writer and I live in Houston, I'm in a, you know, I'm working remotely. The main ringer offices in LA, they also have a secondary office in New York. Since I'm here, I'm mostly by myself. I have an office with a couple of other people, uh, but I'm in there with my headphones on. I don't talk to anybody. So just being on Twitter seemed like a natural way for me to have some sort of connection with some people because I feel like that's an important part of your of your day. So I'm just on there as it is. Um, any of the stuff that's happened be- after that, it's not any pre-planned stuff. It just sort of happens as it happens. Which article, whether it could be from The Ringer or it could be from Grantland, is the most important you've ever written? <laughs> the Whatever one was the last one I did. <laughs> and then whatever one is the – I have an article coming up on Wednesday. That's the most important one I've ever written. It's just always whatever the next thing is. 
there's not just like one that you've written in the past that you think, well, you know, I'm going to keep saying that the next one's going to be the most important, but you think, you know what, this actually has a lot of significance to it, like a Colin Kaepernick story, for example? Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. Uh, you know, what's, what's a weird thing for me is any of the stuff that I've written, when I'm writing it, I feel really good about it and I feel really confident and I'm saying like, oh, this, I'm about to shut shit down with this piece. That's what I'm thinking as I'm writing it and when I finish it. And then I turn it in and like 10 minutes after I turn it in, I just start to panic. And I'm like, oh, that was actually super, like a super shitty article and I don't want anyone to see this and I'm, I, I wish I could just delete it. There's not any article where I look back and I feel like good about it after I wrote it. I just don't want to look at it anymore. I don't think I've ever reread a thing that I wrote. Wow. Oh, really? After I wrote it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right to me. It just feels automatically like a bad thing. Can you go into a bit more details about your process for writing stories? I hear you have a crazy writing schedule where you'll just kind of write a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of the night. Uh, do you just come up with an idea and just put it out? Like, how do you go about writing stories? Well, the I, I need I need to stay very organized with all of my stuff, so my days are are, are very schedule driven. My weeks are schedule driven. My months are scheduled. Like, it, it's all mapped out already ahead of me. So usually, the way that it works is on uh, Friday. Friday of every week, I put together a list of ideas that I want to work on for next week. And I spend the whole day, that's the only thing I do on Fridays is just work on like pitches, basically pitches for stuff I want to do for the following week. And then I turn that in and then my editors, I send it, I send them the list and then they say, okay, this is good. This is bad. Let's change this and make this the new angle for this other piece, whatever. So I have my, my week mapped out and then I just start, uh, I start writing it and, uh, you know, I write during the same hours every day and, um, that's just the whole process. I have a story idea that I'm going to do. I sit down, I write from the beginning through the end of it, and then I reread it and I make my edits and then I reread it one more time and I make my second edit and then I turn it in and cross my fingers. That's that's the process right there, my dude. At like all hours of the morning, essentially, and not just, you know, you know like at 7 o'clock because I've heard you've written like at, like at 11 o'clock at night and you'll power through to like 4 in the morning. Yeah, yeah. It depends on what what stuff I've got going on. For the most part, I try to write. Uh, if I'm at, I, I try to write when I'm in the office. So that's from like nine a.m. to six p.m. or whatever. I try to get myself done then. But there are times when I feel like I'm more comfortable writing at night. So yeah, it's uh, I just wait till everybody at the house goes to sleep, and then I put on the headphones and I start at eleven, and then I finish whenever I finish. I've got a two-part question for you, Shay. First of all, okay. do you miss Grantland? And secondly, what has the transition been like from the Grantland to the Ringer? What are what are the differences? Well, yeah, I, I miss I miss Grantland. I miss any of the old places that I used to work. I miss teaching. I miss when I fucking worked at, at a pizza and sandwich shop. Like the, all of the jobs I've done have parts that were enjoyable. So uh, yeah, I miss it in that in that respect. The transition from going from Grantland to the Ringer, philosophically, it feels very, very much like the same thing. I'm, I'm working with a group of people who are, who are talented and who are smart and who are trying to make good stuff, and that's really at the center of all of the things we're doing at the Ringer. I've never one time working for Sean Finnessy or Bill Simmons or any of these people. 
I've never one time gotten an email about like web traffic or whatever. Like the all the only thing that they're telling me is to just write stuff that you feel good about, write some cool shit, and we're gonna handle all the rest. So philosophically, it's the it's the same thing. On a personal level, I feel a little more responsibility at the ringer, if only because I'm at a different point in my career. When I started at Grantland, I was very much the new guy, and I felt like I was, you know, I'm trying to catch up to all of the people who were ahead of me. At the ringer, I had a, the book that came out that's on the bestseller list. I've got a little more recognition to my name, so I feel like maybe a few more people are paying attention to what I'm doing, so I feel that that pressure or that responsibility. But again, that's self-imposed stuff that's nothing that anybody else has told me all, all they're telling me i assume all they're telling any of the writers is just make cool stuff and we're going to handle all the rest so you have all this cool stuff going for you right now at the ringer what else are you aspiring to Oof, that's a big question um i want to uh, all i'm looking at right now is finishing the, the book i'm maybe like a month away from being 100 percent done with the book which is really exciting and then after that i don't have I don't have anything else scheduled beyond doing the, the ringer stuff. I've, I found for the most part that if you're just working super hard on the thing that you're working on right now, the other cool shit just sort of happens behind it. Like I wasn't plotting on doing this book or I wasn't plotting on being on the bestseller list. I wasn't plotting on any of that other stuff. It was just, I want to work on whatever article I'm working on today and I want to make it as good as possible. And then I'll worry about everything else after that. Good stuff seems to happen when, when you just sort of focus on doing the job you have right now. You know what I'm saying? I think some, mm-hmm. maybe sometimes people get caught up in trying to plan out, oh, I want to get to the next big thing. Well, you can't get to whatever the next thing is if you don't do a good job on the thing you're working on now. Shay, we wanted your take on a few uh, pressing sport topics that are coming up in the, uh, the last few days in the sports world. Let's start in the NBA uh, we've seen Kobe Bryant going up on e- on NBA on ESPN, and he's saying that, hey, maybe it's time to have a co-MVP. Are you buying this notion we could have a co-MVP? And uh, your pick for, NB- for NBA MVP right now. No, I don't want a co-MVP. Co-MVP feels like, why would you even why would you even do that? Why would you have two winners? Why would you have two champions? It doesn't make sense. I'm out on the co-MVP thing. Like, there, there's no way that two people can be exactly the same amount of valuable. Somebody's a little more valuable, even if it's the tiniest thing, whatever, set up some parameters and fill in the blanks. And that's how you figure it out. But no, I'm out on co-MVP. That seems like a very non Kobe thing for Kobe to have said. Did he really say that? Cause I didn't, pay, I didn't see it yet. Yeah. Kobe did. say. I feel like he, there's no way you, you know why he feels like that. Cause he never, cause he never got the MVP. That's why. He didn't win one, right? I'm not just making that He got one. one. He got one. one. A lot of people feel he should have gotten oh, yeah, more, got but he has he one. one. Imagine it. Like he, he's probably saying in his head he should have won five. So he should have been co-MVP for the other four is my guess why he's saying that. Um, so, no, I'm out on co-MVP. For MVP this season, I, I, I hate to say it. I don't like him. I root against him. But it's got to be James Harden, I think. I think he edges out Russell Westbrook just because – he just feels more valuable to the Rockets than Westbrook does to the to the Thunder by the tiniest amount. You're not going to support your boy Kawhi Leonard on the San Antonio Spurs? No. No, I'm not. 
No, I'm not going to. I can't say that he's more valuable than, than James Harden. James Harden, if you take James Harden off the Rockets, you're basically looking at a at a YMCA team. Is what it was feels like. Like it, you couldn't you couldn't put anybody else in James Harden's spot and have happen what's happening with the with the Rockets, with the exception of maybe LeBron. Maybe you could put him in there and, and things would work out the same. But I don't I don't know, man. It just feels like I, when I go watch him play, he's just he's just too he's frustratingly good. So I I, I don't know. But then that that might be just me overcompensating because everybody knows I love Kawhi Leonard and he's my favorite player in the NBA right now. And so maybe I just don't want to say that I think it should be Kawhi because I feel like people are going to just be, say, oh, no, you're only saying that because he's your favorite. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be that guy. I'm nervous not. about it. It's funny that you say that because I actually am from Houston myself, but I, I do think that Harden has solidified his case as MVP as he proved not just yesterday, but that's another piece of the puzzle. But I'm wondering is this just occurred to me is it difficult being a Spurs fan down there in Houston in a uh, Rockets country? No, it's fantastic. It would be difficult being a Rockets fan in San Antonio. But if you're a Spurs fan in Houston, like we've been shitting on the Rockets for the last <laughs> 15 years it's or whatever. True. It's true. So we're fine. We're good. Like we're in the position of power right now so no it's not hard at all if anything i feel like a king did you make a march madness bracket and how's your final four if you made one no i didn't make a march madness bracket i made. i think i've made one bracket in my life back before i was teaching i was working at some construction company and all of the builders were making one and they asked if i wanted to participate so i just made one and then they took my ten dollars and i never heard anything about it again I've never made a, a bracket after that. I don't pay close enough attention to it. I don't, the only games I watch are when we get to, like, during the last two minutes of any game, I'm going to turn it on, or when we're in the round, like, the, uh, from the Sweet 16 in. I'm going to pay attention to that. I've been watching all the recent games. Well, I, I was going to ask, did you watch that Wisconsin game? Because after the game, we saw Zach Showalter, the point guard for Wisconsin, who hit that off-balance three to send things into overtime. He... He said specifically to you on Twitter that he shot his shot. I'm wondering if were you watching that live, and what was your reaction to that? Yeah, I was watching that that game. I'm a big Wisconsin fan. I, I started watching them a couple of years ago, actually. Um, you know, we, had, we the Texans have J.J. Watt, so that's the was the first time I paid any attention to. I didn't even know Wisconsin was in America until J.J. Watt got to the Texans, and then I started watching the. You know, you watch the tournament and you as a as a passive fan, you will just naturally pick a team who you're rooting for. And it was the year that uh, Sam Decker was on there and, and, and Big Frank. I was watching those guys play, and I really just was enjoying what they were doing. Because to me, it seemed like they just didn't give a shit about anything. Like, they they never looked afraid or nervous when I was watching them play. And and players like that are, are really interesting to me because I've always been terrified of everything and nervous of everything so when i see basketball players who go the opposite direction it's it's very captivating to me and then sam decker ended up on the rocket yeah so he's just here and it was just like oh i'll just be watching you know i'll pay attention to wisconsin whenever whenever they're playing so yeah what i didn't even know that show walter was following me on twitter i think 
going back through it, maybe we've had some interactions. I don't, I don't pay too, too much attention to that. Um, but yeah, he sent that thing with a picture and it took me a few minutes to realize that that was the guy who shot the shot. Oh shit. That, <laughs> that was neat. But yeah, I watched the game. It was very sad. I was very sad at the end for, for like two minutes. And then when I changed the channel, I wasn't sad anymore. It's going to be interesting when you're torn rooting for Sam Decker when he's playing the Spurs in the playoffs later this year. I've got another Houston connection for you. You might be the only person I know who was, throughout the season, the ultimate Brock Osweiler defender. I want to know, are you going to miss this guy? No, I'm not going to miss him at all. <laughs> Brock was my guy when he was on the Texans because he was on the Texans. Okay. So, you know, I want to stand up for Brock. You know what it feels like? It feels like when my kids would show me like a shitty picture that they drew <laughs> and I got in and I look at it, I can look and see that it's shitty oh, and I understand man. that it's not very good, but I think it's fantastic and I love it. And I'm so proud that they drew that picture. It's the same way with Brock. Like I watched him play and duh, he's not a great quarterback. He was very bad for the Texans, but he was my guy and I loved him. So I was rooting for him. But now he's gone, so I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Shay Serrano from The Ringer, we we can't thank you enough for taking the time for joining us on the Face Off podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Face Off podcast. For Jake Lapin, special thank you to uh, Sam Fortier uh, and Shay Serrano for joining us on this week's episode. Uh, keep it locked here for more great content. This has been another great episode of the Face Off podcast.